Hi, Jens here. Are you interested in innovation? This might be something for you too. Every Friday, I share the latest innovation articles, ideas, videos, books, podcasts, and more that I discovered during the week in my newsletter, Connect the Dots. If you subscribe, you will receive an email into your inbox every Friday. You can't find the newsletter anywhere else, so you have to subscribe if you want to receive it. Head over to jensheitland.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. But now, let's get started with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Jens Heitland Show where I connect the dots of innovation and entrepreneurship. My name is Jens Heitland and welcome to the show. Today's guest is the Disruptor-in-Chief. He is an entrepreneur and has founded and co-founded over 10 companies. He has advised and mentored dozens of startups, scale-ups and associations. Please welcome to the show, Seth van der Meer. Hey Seth, welcome to the show, how are you doing? Hey, Jens. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. How are you? Good. Perfect. Yeah. Sun is shining. There's nothing better in Germany right now. Yeah, I yeah, I know. It's I'm, I'm, I'm not too far from you here in the Netherlands. It's also uh, great weather, great sun. So uh, that also uh, makes today good. Yes. So before we go into your entrepreneurial journey, I think there are a lot of things, we, nuggets we will figure out and, and innovation, of course. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What is your story? Wow, yeah, I have a long way back. So I started somewhere in the mid-90s where I was still at university, discovering the internet. I was, I think, one of the first that sort of, in my department, had access to a computer and especially to the World Wide Web. I wanted to do a lot with it, but I was still studying, so I had to make some decisions there, and I, I wanted to become starting up something for myself. In the end, I didn't at that time, so I worked at an internet company for a couple of years. We were building websites, and then... I think it was in 2000 where, or a little, little earlier, where I came back with the idea of starting my own company, which I did with a, with a friend. And it was a complete failure, not because of the idea, but just because of the timing. So we had this like situation with the internet bubble bursting, Wall Street. Yeah, we had to rethink our plans. And in the end, we did not really start that company. So, but I was already on that path of doing my own thing. So I became a freelancer. And then I think uh, two years later, I found um, a couple of, uh, of friends. We started working together. And eventually, in 2004, I started uh, the company that I'm currently still, again, I would say, working for, which is called Kelp, basically a company that helps people to set up their mobile phone. At that time, it was quite new, right? So how to get your phone connected to the internet. Did that for a couple of years, then came into the world of video games, set up a video game business development platform. Uh, with an incubator and a big developer festival and try to sort of shape the entrepreneurial platform, entrepreneurial infrastructure, I could say, for young video game developers. Hmm. That was in, in the city of Utrecht and in, in the, the center of the Netherlands. And there I met some people that were also the owner of uh, some of the shopping malls in, in Europe, one of the larger ones in, in the Netherlands called Hoogaterijnen, but also shopping centers around Europe. And I thought that was an interesting combination, that virtual versus the real world, and how is that going to change how people 
are going to entertain, are going to shop, are going to spend their time, basically, because, you know, you can spend 10 hours a day on a computer or you, you can spend 10 hours a day in a shopping center. So that was an interesting time, and, and I learned a lot about that specific industry. Now, I did that for a couple of years in various positions, but always sort of in, in that innovation scene, so trying to come up with new innovations, how to get people to the shopping center, how to motivate them, how to, motivate them, how to reward them with digital points and, and stuff like that. And at some point, that shopping center company was being sold to another one, and I sort of took out that business and continued with that for a couple of years. In the meantime, I had a few businesses on the side, things happening, but that was sort of the main thing that I kept on doing. And then I think somewhere in 2017, 18, I, I came back to where I am, where I started almost, the company that I, I just told you about, Kelp, which was by then acquired by Sykes. And I got to work on a completely sort of new area, a new department that we wanted to grow, which was, again, all around innovation and finding new markets and uh, developing new products and new propositions. So, yeah, sort of a, a quick rundown of the, uh, the events of the last 20, yeah, even a little bit more than 20 years. <laughs> yeah, interesting stories. And we will dig definitely more into the different parts of the story. One thing that's maybe as well for those who are listening, where we met was quite funny. You have been advisor for IKEA centers as well from an innovation perspective. And that's, that's how we connected when I was still yeah. in, in the corporate world a couple of years back. That's, it's quite funny how we meet again and then discuss still innovation topics. So digging into your journey, how was it starting your first company, coming from a corporate setup and then go into your own business? Basically, the first, um, so I, I think I had a bit of luck that I, the company that I would say I started with, if you if that's correct to say, but at least one of my first real employers, it was in the late 90s, and it was already, it was kind of a startup environment, right? Because it was the internet, I think there were 15 people, yeah, working when I started, and when I left, we had 60 or 70 people, so we grew like 200% in, in, in two years' time. So I was already sort of like in that mood of everything's possible, grow your own beliefs, your own dreams, and very multitasking. So because you were a small company, you had to do everything from, you know, project management to account management to consulting to, God forbid, even, even doing some programming in HTML myself, right? So yeah. really, these, these, all these things were, were there. And I think that shaped, it shaped the, the fundamentals that I needed to be confident that I could do it on myself, that I could be... Like a real, so we, you can do it without having a proper job before you start. But I think those three years almost that I spent there uh, gave me a little bit more depth and a little bit more confidence that I was able to, to start it. So when I started it in 2000, then it failed because we had backing. We, we needed financial backing. So we went to investors and we had two investors that were willing to back us up. So we were like really ready to go. And then this, this Wall Street crash and the internet bubble burst. So that didn't stop me from starting that entrepreneurial journey. I was like, I was ready for, I knew, okay, this company is not going to be it, at least not for the, in the short term. Mm. But because I made that decision in my head, I took that step. Yeah, I think that was, the, I think, the best choice. Well, not in my life, but at least one of the best choices in my life, right? Uh, so it was really... It helped me a lot in my personal life, in my development, in becoming more 
Well, also, I think I'm a bit more aware of my own capabilities. Mm. It helped, of course, in, in just a lot of fun that I had from that point onwards. And not always fun, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you're also encounter difficult times where you have to make decisions that you, that you just don't want to do because you don't want to kill your own babies, but you have to do sometimes. Yeah, uh, yeah that, that was, a, I think that sort of, even though that company did not really succeed, I still started and then just as a, as a freelancer to do my own uh, things and find my own way. Yeah. How was it at that time? Today, a lot of, let's say, if, if you start a business and you fail, a lot of people from the outside who are not into an entrepreneurial way of thinking are saying, hey, you have failed as a person. How was it at that time? How did it feel for you? When I look back at it, I was ready for myself long before I took the decision to really do it. So I think I spent half a year debating within myself, should I do this, before we went out to really try to start a business. So by that time, I already had some contacts. I started sort of a network of people that I knew from the, the couple of years that I worked before, just people that I met in that job. When we could not start it up, when we had to say, okay, let's let's stop this company. The good thing is I had a network that I could immediately sort of call and say, okay, you know, we were doing this. We met a couple of weeks ago. Probably we will not be doing it. I'm looking for something. <laughs> do you have, not, not a job, but do you, do you know somewhere I can do a, an assignment or is there some things that need to be done? So I do not come from an entrepreneurial background. So my mother was a, a school teacher. My father didn't even have a job. So so I did not really have like that sort of background of, of, of being an entrepreneur, but I felt supported. I think that's, I mean, if you have lots of people talking that, talking you down, I think it's more difficult, but in my case, yeah. 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 Then you founded a business, which, of course, at that time, you didn't know that it is still existing in 2021. Did you start that business with the mindset of that you will sell it one day, which you did then to the American business? Or was it more that you, you built your dream and you will be working in that forever? Yeah, so I was like, I think when I when, when this, this all happened, it was 2004. So I was sort of already four years on that path of doing my own things, a couple of years on my own. Then I found a few friends to work with together. And I think because I already found those friends, I had sort of in my mind, I thought, let's start this business as something to sell at some point. Hmm. I think at that point, I knew we would have to invest time and money in it to get it started. It was something that I had some passion for. So it was something that I'd been working on before as well. It was in the telecoms industry, which in that time was a thriving industry. It had to do with user experience, which is something that I have a lot of interest in. I really like to provide good user experiences. So when I did it, it felt like, hey, this is, I love this. And I, I sort of had to also at some point make a choice between continuing that and saying goodbye to all my other projects or, you know, do it as a project on the side together with the other founder. It was a struggle for some time. I spent lots of times on it and I had lots of fun and I also had lots of difficult decisions. So at some point I had to make that choice of, of letting it go, but I, I was not really aware of that when I started it. I started it as, oh yeah, we can do it and we'll see where it goes and hopefully we can sell it for a good price someday. Uh, we didn't really know. I think I think we, later on, I became more aware of that it's that you you have a choice, or at least you think you have a choice. But at that time, it, I, I think I just rolled in. I think let's 
let's try this just yeah go behind that idea and see where it goes yeah and then later on you in the end ended up in selling it how was that happening and how was it feeling as an entrepreneur it's basically like you said it's like your baby because you have been part of it the whole time and then it you're giving it away and someone else is taking over for me that point came earlier i think i sold my part of the business roughly two years before it was sold to the american mother company so i was not in that process but i did what i, I was in the process like two years earlier of do i want to still continue with it because like i said i at some point made the choice to spend time on other projects as well started new businesses as well so i think after a year or seven eight i had to make the choice can i invest more time and money in kelp or do i just have to sell it to to other shareholders who are able to do either a financial or a, not some other capital investment for me it was not yeah it was that was difficult because i had this idea like i want to keep on to our shares but i also knew that the company needed funding and i was not able at that time to do it financially and I could only do it in person, but then I had other projects and companies that I'd started up and that also took a lot of attention. So that was that was difficult because I was sort of hoping to always hold on to these shares uh, became, until the big day came. And I sold it like two years before the big day came, still for a reasonable price, but yeah, it would have been better. <laughs> And now you're working again for that company. Yeah, that How was did that story. happen? How did that happen? Yeah, that's. I think the, the story behind that is that I was working in this retail industry for, for quite some time. I had a, a lunch or a dinner with the co-founder of Kelp. And he said, well, what are you doing today? How's it going? And we had this sort of random chat about all kinds of things. And I knew that, of course, I knew the, the company was sold to a, a larger American enterprise. And he said, well, I will be going at some point, right? I have done this, I've sold the shares, and, and I want to do new things. And I'm not very well at working in a more corporate environment. He was a very entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial guy. So I had done that before. I worked not only as the advisor to IKEA, but also to other larger companies. And I, I felt like, hmm. There's some interesting things here because this company needs to reinvent itself. It has been doing the same thing for the last 10, 12 years. And now new propositions need to be made. New markets need to be found and explored. And the good thing is I could do that with money. That sounds stupid, but I've always funded my own projects. And now yeah. for the first time, sort of, I, I was able to come in a position where I could develop a market and develop new propositions without having to think of income all the time because the income's stable now and now i can really focus on developing a market and growing a business and see if i can grow an industry or at least a company and have it grow like 15 to 20 percent a year which is a challenging but a very interesting new project for me to not just focus on okay can i start something from scratch to from zero to one mm -hmm. but can i get it from from 10 to 50 right For me, it was a new challenge. Uh, never been in that sort of corporate environment, really deep into it for a long time. I've always been my own boss for, except for the first couple of years. So you need an entrepreneurial spirit. Sometimes they call it an intrapreneur. I, I don't really know if I agree with that term, but at least you need that entrepreneurial spirit. You need to have a role where you'll be able to still sort of have enough detachment from the organization 
have people around you that do the political stuff, so you don't have to go into that. But you can really just be bold and just shout out things and, and go directions without people looking over your shoulder all the time. That's really what I'm what I have been doing over the last three years, which is a completely new adventure for me. Yeah. Love it. Talking about innovation, you have touched it already. How do you describe innovation for yourself? Yeah, so innovation is like, there are lots of definitions. So I usually look at it from the perspective of wherever I see friction in processes. So it could be like, for instance, why do I get all these updates from packages that are going to arrive at my door, but it's so hard to just give me a time, right? That could be one example. And that's a personal thing. And then I start thinking, and well, I think most of the time I do nothing with it. It's just sitting in my head thinking, oh, this could be done in a better way. So friction is an important point. Is there a friction that irritates an end user or that dissatisfied an end user? That's a starting point. And then there's another input that's more like, what do I see happening around me? So what are the trends that I see? And how do they, those trends influence different industries? So for instance, when I, when I was working in retail, and you saw, of course, e-commerce coming up, I found the gaming trend much more interesting mm-hmm. because those were really immersive worlds. I saw that retail trying to sort of come up with all kinds of activities and events, not scalable at all. And I saw that virtual world that was really emerging you into worlds where you could spend hours and hours. And so for me, that was like, hey, I see this gaming trend. I see retail and how are they, how can they ever come together? And what would that mean in terms of what kind of innovations can you think of when you when you combine these things? So it's, it's both things. So it's something not going right. And do you see trends in different areas that you can apply to that industry where things are not going smooth or not going in, in, in without any friction. But that's where I usually start to get curious, where I start to think of ideas and where innovation starts for me. With that, it's also it also implies that it's difficult to look back and say, how can I research whether this is actually going to happen, right? Because there's not like tons of material that will prove you right. Yeah. There might be material that will prove you wrong, but material that will prove you right, evidence, hard to find. So for, for a part, you're, you're, you're sort of riding a gut feeling wave. And then when you go along, you're, you're, you try to sort of validate your assumptions, find evidence. That for me is innovation. So having those two inputs and then just go for it. Don't dare to, uh, to fail. Just, just try to do make stuff out of it. Yeah. And then you have been advising companies from small to large on innovation topics and most probably other topics as well. But if we focus on the innovation part of it, what are the things that are working in corporations when it comes to innovation and what have you seen is not really working in corporations? Hmm. Well, I think, I think in terms of larger corporations, I just spoke about daring to risk, you know, daring to fail. I think that's, of course, in in larger corporations, especially ones that are listed somewhere. The first thing you get confronted with is, of course, all the people that are risk averse that are that say, "Well, can you prove it? What will? How much will we earn with it? How much damage can we get when when it goes wrong?" So that's a sort of a continuous force that you always have to address. Like, okay, we need to find a safe environment 
where things can go wrong without having the CFO or someone else looking over your shoulder or legal or telling you, well, you cannot do this. That's sort of a, a thing that I've always found in, in larger corporations to, to find a place where you can have some sort of artificial freedom, right? You're never completely free in a large corporation. You can forget that, but you, you can you can find that. Mm. Or that's the other path that I've been on with is if a company is sort of willing to set people like really free, again, this still is in some sort of boundaries and they don't ask a specific deliverable. They just give you time. And I think that was when I started working for the company called Corio, which is now part of Clipier, which was the owner of shopping malls. One of the first large assignments that I did there was just half a year of research free without any deliverable that we wanted to get out of it. We were able to do to set up a lab and just experiment, experiment, experiment. Um, that was sort of the, in my opinion, one of the best settings for a company or a larger corporation to throw out something and just see what happens, knowing that it was a, that it, that they were not able to get any better answers from any of the large consultancies because everyone was in the dark about developments. Retail versus e-commerce versus, yeah, the future of shopping centers in this case. That was one way of, of trying to get this sort of room and you don't have a deliverable. That's that's the most optimal. You see sometimes that companies then start like an incubator platform. So they start to fund small, yeah, small companies, students. I know there are, there are successful examples, but it's also difficult because you immediately come into this sort of financial dependency that looks great in the beginning, but at some point you have to sort of deliver something back. As long as you don't have to deliver like a real specific result, but more things like, I want to get an update every two weeks, or I want to see an experiment every month. That's for me the most ideal way of in innovating in a larger corporation. If you then take this to, to the startup world, you're advising startups as well. So what are you advising them? Is it also innovation or is it more like their business development topics and so on? Yeah, that depends, of course, on I've done both. So I've done both. But when I do, when I advise them on more business kind of things, I do not really advise them on how to set up your business or whatever. It's more like helping them not to lose their, of course, their focus, but also to be willing to give up things that they think are valuable, right? Mm. So they, you often see they start with an idea and then they go completely for that idea and they, they forget to look around to, to check whether there's any demand for what they want, whether there's any, like I said, you don't need proof, but at least if you're developing something like, for instance, for, for an end user or a consumer or, for, or also for a business, you want to find out, is there any anyone remotely interested in the idea that I'm now developing. So one of the first things I do is just go outside. Don't spend too many hours inside your office or inside your lab or whatever you have. You need to spend a significant time of your business development, of your product development with speaking with possible future customers, possible future partners, possible future investors, everyone that sort of can help you shape that idea and validate it to be sure that once you're ready, 
there's a chance you find someone who's actually interested in what you what you do. Unless you're an artist, right? Then you can do whatever you want. But if you're not an artist, if it's not your hobby, then you need to find someone who at some point is willing to to pay your money for what you're what you're making. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's the business advice that I usually give to them. From an innovation perspective, it is more like, okay, there's some functional things on how what is your product or your service? What is it actually, what is it going to do? How is this better than, I had this rule once, and this is not so much about better, but I had this rule once where I said, someone said, well, we're going to deliver this service and we're going to do it for half the price of our competitors, right? And they thought that was innovating. And so, well, if you want to be innovating, you have to say half the price and then cut that in half again, right? Because then you're disruptive if you want to be like, you need to be not just 20, 30, 40% better. You need to be almost 100% better than your competitor to, especially if your competitor is like a large corporation or established or whatever. So then I usually challenge those companies on, on these kind of things, right? So you have a good idea. You're, you're 50% better. Now make it 100% better. You can do it 50% cheaper. Now do it 100% cheaper, right? You, you have to challenge yourself with those ideas to find out if you are doing things better, which for me is not innovation, <laughs> mm. or are you doing things differently? Mm. And I think there's, there's the whole, there again, you have a part of the definition of innovation. I think real innovation does things in a different way. You might establish the same results, but the way that you achieve them is, is completely different from what anyone else, or at least what most of the people before you have tried and done before. Yeah, yeah. So moving towards your job you're doing today, and I don't know how much you can share or are willing to share. I was fascinated when we have been on a call the, the, the other week where, where you said it's like how you use this way of innovation, thinking in the business development of your current job, looking mm -hmm. into the medical devices and so on. So can you explain things around that or is it, can't you share that? No, sure. Yeah, I, I, can, I, can share, I can share things uh, around that. Yeah, let me give a little bit of background just to, to introduce yeah. that. What we have been doing over the last 15 years, I would say, we have, and I make it very simple, we have been making interactive user guides for electronic devices and mobile phones, really things on how to set it up, how to troubleshoot. Whenever you run into pro problems with your computer, your, your, your PlayStation or your iPhone, you go to the website of, for instance, a T-Mobile in Germany or, or Vodafone, and you'll find the answer. And that answer is made by us most of the time. So I thought that capability of producing very user-friendly interactive manuals that help people to help themselves, we can apply that to many devices. And as things go, I had a, a business meeting at a large health insurance company in the US, I found out that that business is sort of ready for disruption. That's sort of the most old fashioned business that I have ever seen in my life. And I thought I had seen a few. Yeah, I was about to say that, that, that says a lot. So I was like, wow, wow, how's everybody knows the healthcare in the US is one of the most expensive healthcare industries in the world. And it's it's very, Let's put it mildly, but it's it's not very well organized. <laughs> and there are many players in there. So, but most of it, in the end, it's really simple, right? There's someone who is the patient, there's someone who's the doctor or some, or some other healthcare professional, and there's someone in between that's paying the bills. 
Hey, this is Jens again. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you like what you have listened to, please subscribe to the podcast and share the episodes with your friends and people you think might like it too. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, please follow me on social media or look me up at jensheitland.com. Thank you very much and see you in the next episode.